Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind the headlines. I'm Joanne Freeman. I'm Nathan Connolly. And I'm Ed Ayers. Each week, Nathan, Joanne, our colleague Brian Ballow, and I explore the history of a topic in the news. Brian Ballow couldn't join us today, but you'll hear his voice in several of the interviews. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Almost four years ago, eight justices of the court... This month, the United States Supreme Court hears oral arguments on the constitutionality of partisan gerrymandering, the rights of workers in labor disputes, and whether a Colorado bakery owner can refuse to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding because it goes against his religious beliefs. So this week, we're dipping into the Backstory archives to look at past Supreme Court decisions that have made a major impact on free speech, the right to privacy, and religious freedom. It is a five to four decision in favor of Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby does not have to pay for the disputed birth control techniques. However, he ruling this morning saying that police can take DNA samples from criminal suspects after arrest, but before trial, before conviction, and without any warrant. This is a big deal. The Supreme Court of the United States found gay and lesbian Americans have a constitutional right to marry. We're going to begin the show with a case that set the stage for our modern understanding of free speech. In 1917, the year that the United States officially entered the First World War, a Philadelphia man named Charles Schenck mailed out 15,000 leaflets protesting the country's brand new draft. Schenck was General Secretary of the Socialist Party of the United States. His flyers urged newly drafted soldiers to assert your rights and to fight what Schenck and other war dissenters considered involuntary servitude. But earlier that same year, President Woodrow Wilson had pushed the Espionage Act through Congress. This law made it a crime to interfere with U.S. military operations, including recruitment. It would later be used to convict Pentagon Papers leaker Daniel Ellsberg, WikiLeaks source Chelsea Manning, and NSA contractor Edward Snowden. Back in 1917, Wilson and others believed that those who opposed the draft were endangering the war effort. It was on these grounds that authorities arrested Charles Schenck and sentenced him to six months in jail. He appealed the decision, arguing that it was a violation of his First Amendment rights. Now, to our ears, it would seem like Schenck had the law on his side because his civil liberties had been violated. But a hundred years ago, the law wasn't so clear. Here's University of Chicago legal scholar Jeffrey Stone. In 1919, what we think of as the court's constitutional role, it did not yet fully understand. It was not until World War I that the Supreme Court actually got involved in interpreting the First Amendment. And in Schenck's case, the Supreme Court upheld his conviction. The high court concluded that in wartime, the government had broad authority to suppress potentially dangerous speech. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. wrote the majority opinion. And in doing so, Holmes wrote a kind of puzzling opinion. 
Because the First Amendment provides that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. And taken literally, that seems to mean the government can never interfere with speech. And Holmes wanted to say, That's, that can't be right. Um, and so he gave this famous hypothetical to say, well, clearly it doesn't mean what it seems to mean, because obviously the government can prohibit someone from falsely yelling fire in a crowded theater. We admit that in many places and in ordinary times, the defendants would have been within their constitutional rights. But the character of every act depends upon the circumstances in which it is done. The most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. And then he uses this very famous language of clear and present danger. The question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. Most of us today hearing the phrase clear and present danger would think that meant a very demanding test, a very rigorous test. And nothing that Schenck did would seem to qualify for the kind of clear and present danger that's typified by, say, a false cry of fire in a crowded theater, where there'd be an immediate dash to the exits and people would be trampled and people would be harmed. There was nothing like that in Schenck. So it was clear that in the, in the spring of 1919, when Holmes handed down these decisions, his view is that the First Amendment had very little bite to it. But then Holmes began to change his mind. Later that summer, he boarded the train for his vacation in New England, and as fate would have it, Holmes was seated next to a fellow judge named Learned Hand. And very respectfully, um, because Holmes was a Supreme Court justice and Hand was a much younger man and a federal district judge, uh, and Hand began questioning Holmes about, well, are you sure you really did the right thing here? Hand wasn't the only one criticizing Holmes' interpretation of the First Amendment. Other public intellectuals pointed out that Holmes was, well, wrong. And to his credit, he actually listened to the different competing views. And when he came back to Washington the following fall, um, he began to have serious second thoughts about what he had done in Shank. That became clear when the court heard Abrams versus the United States that fall. Like Shank, Jacob Abrams and his cohorts had been arrested for distributing anti-war flyers. They were convicted under the Sedition Act of 1918, which expressly prohibited any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the United States government. The majority of the Supreme Court said basically, this is a non-issue. We've already decided this last spring in Schenck, uh, and therefore these guys go to jail. And Holmes, to everyone's shock, joined by uh, Justice Louis Brandeis, wrote a powerful, eloquent dissenting opinion in which he latched on to the phrase clear and present danger, and he said, no, 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 the test is clear and present danger. There's no clear and present danger here. Um, Abrams cannot be convicted. The majority said, what are you talking about? Um, this case is no different from the cases from, from the spring. Um, and Holmes basically pretended that the case was different um, and essentially said that, no, I'm right. You're wrong. You're misreading my opinion from Schenck. Um, and this is the right way to go. Holmes was a highly respected judge. Yet his fellow justices were baffled by his sudden about-face on the First Amendment. Stone says that after World War I, Holmes and Brandeis continued to push for a broader interpretation of the First Amendment in a series of eloquent dissents. But they never persuaded the majority. But what they did it was to keep the issue alive, and they were such good writers and such highly respected intellects 
that those opinions gradually began to affect the way individuals in, in America thought about freedom of speech. The Supreme Court finally overruled the Schenck decision in 1969 in a case called Brandenburg v. Ohio. This ruling said that government cannot restrict speech simply because it advocates breaking the law. The court cited several of Holmes's and Brandeis's famous dissents from nearly 50 years before in its decision. And it's a great example of exactly what they were arguing about. What they were saying is one of the reasons you have to have freedom of speech is so that ideas can be put out there and people can think about them and reflect on them. And over time, uh, in a marketplace of ideas, they can come to have uh, perhaps better conclusions. And their, their opinions were meant to be and were, in fact, a, a perfect illustration of exactly what they were defending in terms of the meaning of free speech. Jeffrey Stone is a professor at the University of Chicago Law School. He is author of Speaking Out, Reflections of Law, Liberty, and Justice. So, Nathan, Ed, one of the things that strikes me about this story is over the long haul, sort of looking in the long distance of time, it's pretty striking how during times of war or near war or quasi-war or threat, Mm -hmm. those are the moments when fundamental principles, fundamental American principles really get tested and hammered out. I think that that's absolutely right. Um, And in the case of Schenck in particular, it's amazing to look at this language that we now just kind of take for granted, clear and present danger, having such gravity in the debate, right? I mean, what counts as a danger that presidents or Congress has to protect us from? Right. Yeah, even during the great crisis of the Civil War, I think we'd be surprised the extent to which the Democrats and Republicans argued over exactly this, the the boundaries of appropriate power, because Lincoln was seen as a tyrant for uh, revoking habeas corpus, for infringing upon the freedom of the press, for (laughs) instituting the draft. All these things were seen as horrible violations of the constitutional rights of the nation. And so looking back on it, it seems obvious that slavery would have trumped everything else. But many times people saw slavery as a subset of this grasping for power by Mm -hmm. Lincoln. When Mm -hmm. he had the authority to end the war, he continued to extend it just to bring slavery to an end. So, Joanne, you're exactly right. Wartime exaggerates all these conflicts that are there all the time, and in the case of the Civil War, seem to be disproportionately important. That's actually really helpful, Ed, in explaining for me was something that's confused me for a long time, which is, you know, why is it that in, only in the early part of the 20th century are you really beginning to see things like the Bill of Rights be adjudicated through the courts? I mean, I, I was always under the impression that when you think through the problem of the freedmen, the problem of post-Reconstruction, race relations in the South, that that would be about the Bill of Rights, right, about people's – their human rights, basically. I mean, you have a whole moment, a whole chapter, really, in the country's history where the Bill of Rights, even when there's a human rights crisis in the South, is not really what's being adjudicated. It's remarkable. And the the interesting thing about that is, I mean, particularly when you're talking about something like the Bill of Rights, Mm -hmm. right, is that we, we take these things to be absolutely defined and we forget how fluid they are and, and how they are worked and reworked and redefined over the passage of time.
1984, the police approached a trash collector about some of the garbage set out by a homeowner on his route. This was on a quiet suburban street in Southern California. In Laguna Beach, California, the local trash man became an arm of the law. Police had a tip Billy Greenwood was dealing drugs, not enough evidence to get a warrant to search his home. So they got the garbage man to turn over Greenwood's trash. And there they found receipts for drug sales and drug paraphernalia. Police used those discarded receipts to get a search warrant for the house. And in their search, they found enough evidence to indict Greenwood and his girlfriend on drug dealing charges. Not so fast, said Greenwood. He challenged the indictment, saying the garbage search violated his right to privacy. The California Supreme Court agreed. The case made it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1988. Court has now decided that once your garbage is as far as the curb, if the police want it, they don't need a warrant to look through it. Writing for the majority, Justice Byron White ruled that police don't need a warrant to look through your trash, at least if it's on the curb. For decades, the court had interpreted the Fourth Amendment as protecting a citizen's reasonable expectation of privacy. Stanford University legal scholar David Sklansky talked to Brian Ballow in 2015, and Sklansky says this expectation was at the heart of the debate in California v. Greenwood. Justice White said, you know, if you put your garbage out on the curb, it's liable to be pawed through by animals, scavengers, children, snoops. Uh, so <laughs> right. you can't, it's, it's not reasonable to say that you can expect privacy in something like that. That was that's the first what, That's what garbage is, something you're getting rid of. Yeah. One thing the court didn't say, the court didn't say, this isn't your, you, you've thrown it away, so you obviously don't care about it anymore. That's what a lot of uh, lower courts had said in disagreeing with the California uh, Supreme Court's approach to this matter. A lot of lower federal courts and, and some state courts had said that searches of garbage aren't regulated by the Fourth Amendment because when you discard something, it's not yours anymore. It's yeah. not your property anymore. Yeah. And that was a decent argument up until the 1960s. The problem is that in the 1960s, the Supreme Court had said, we don't think that the Fourth Amendment only protects you against invasions of your property. And they said that because they wanted to extend the Fourth Amendment to protect against electronic surveillance, which often didn't involve any kind of physical trespass. So by the time the Supreme Court decided the Greenwood case in 1988, they had kind of boxed themselves in. They couldn't say, this is not a search because you've thrown it away. It's not your property anymore. And they didn't say that. Instead, they said, it's not a search because it's not reasonable to expect privacy in something that scavengers and animals and children and snoops might paw through. That was one argument. The second argument was, you can't really have a reasonable expectation of privacy in something that you've voluntarily given to a third party. The third party here was the garbage collector. And the court's theory was, since Greenwood and Van Houten had voluntarily conveyed this stuff to the garbage collector, they couldn't really say that they had a reasonable expectation of privacy anymore because when you give something to somebody else, you don't know what they're going to do with it. Who knows what those garbage collectors, I'm sure they're just prying through people's trash all day. That was the theory. Okay, so that's the decision. What did the dissent say? So the dissent was written by Justice Brennan, joined by Justice Marshall, and they essentially were incredulous. They said, we can't believe that the court really thinks that it's not an invasion of privacy to paw through somebody's garbage to find out what they're doing inside their house. 
And in fact, uh, Justice Brennan relied in part on the same incident involving former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger that the majority relied on. One of the things that uh, Justice White said in his majority opinion when he was explaining why you couldn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in trash was a famous incident in 1975 when the National Enquirer sent a reporter to take away some of the garbage that then-Secretary of State Henry Kissinger had left outside of his residence and found a lot of embarrassing stuff. And Justice Brennan said, yeah, but everybody (laughs) thinks that this is outrageous. Right. And the fact that it might happen to you shouldn't mean that it's okay for the police to do it to you. Okay. So, David, when we go back to the actual items that really helped to convict Greenwood in the case of these cocaine dealers back in the 1980s, those items are things like plastic straws and plastic baggies that were tinged with cocaine. Uh, That's what the police officer found who was investigating. I don't think we'd find that kind of trash in 19th century garbage. Uh, You know, if I were going through Abraham Lincoln's trash, I just wouldn't expect to find any of those throwaway items. Has the nature of trash changed a lot? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, it's odd because the history of trash searches as an investigative tool is kind of all bound up with advances in technology, partly because trash itself is bound up with advances in technology. I mean, we didn't have disposable straws and disposable razor blades Precisely. in the 19th century. We didn't have weekly curbside trash collection mm-hmm. in the 19th century because people didn't generate a- enough trash. So, I mean, part of what makes trash searches a valuable investigative tool is that we all today regularly discard so much. We're kind of constantly shedding uh, evidence of what we've been up to that wasn't as much the case um, in the 19th century. So I don't want you to think I'm not paying attention or multitasking, but I have to confess I'm looking at this trash can icon on my computer. Uh, wondering whether I should delete this set of emails that's up on the screen. When I hit the delete button and trash them, do those emails remain my property? Are they subject to search? Where do they go? Well, where they go is a really interesting question. Whether the police can get to them is another interesting and more practical question. And the short answer to the second question is, yeah, the police can get to them in a variety of ways. And we've been trying for the last couple decades to figure out how to think about police searches of somebody's computer. We know, for example, that when you put something in the trash can of your computer, it doesn't necessarily wipe out all electronic traces of that file on your computer. We know that sophisticated techniques can be used to recover the file. So how does the Fourth Amendment think about that stuff? The court's been wrestling with that question for decades now, but one of the the court's theories was that anything that you do that other people can potentially see or look at Uh, is not something you can claim a reasonable expectation of privacy in. But the advances in 
electronic surveillance technology, including drones, including GPS tracking, have made the court more and more uncomfortable uh, with that idea, the idea that just because it's out in public, you can't claim uh, a privacy interest in it. Also, at least one member of the court, Justice Sotomayor, has said on the record that she thinks it's time for the court to re-examine the idea that you lose Fourth Amendment protection in anything that you voluntarily give to a third party, which was uh, the other basis for the Supreme Court's decision in Greenwood. Right. Giving that garbage to the trash yeah. man was giving it to a third party. So the problem is that today we all are constantly shedding not just physical detritus in the form of trash that we put out on the curb every week, but all kinds of electronic detritus. David Sklansky is a professor at Stanford University Law School. When we think about rights today, we tend to think about the Bill of Rights. And we take for granted protections against any level of government, local, state, and federal. But that's not exactly what the founders had in mind. They were principally concerned about overreach by the federal government. It wasn't until the 1940s that the Supreme Court started considering those first 10 amendments in light of the actions of states. One of the cases that helped forge this transformation focused on, of all things, the Pledge of Allegiance. In 1935, a pair of siblings named Lillian and William Gobitis were expelled by their Pennsylvania school for refusing to recite the pledge. They were Jehovah's Witnesses and, as such, had been taught that saluting the flag of any government amounted to idolatry. The family sued, arguing that their religious freedom had been violated. The case worked its way up to the Supreme Court, which in 1940 ruled 8-1 to against the Gabbatas family. Historian Sarah Beringer-Gordon has written about this case. She told her co-host Brian that it's worth remembering that the author of the majority opinion, Justice Felix Frankfurter, had been born into a Jewish family in Austria. What he said was, this is the way you attach a child to the United States. This kind of ritual, this kind of ritual engaged in with other children uh, in allegiance to a powerful symbol such as the flag was what tied Americans together and made them a nation. So it was the state's right to promote citizenship among children. Exactly. And it's fair to say that in the build-up to the Second World War, there was a great sense of danger to the country. Um, And most states enacted mandatory flag salute rituals to do just that. Okay. So uh, the Supreme Court rules pretty definitively that the state's correct, that those kids can be suspended from school because they won't say the Pledge of Allegiance. Yet three years later, if I'm correct, there's another Supreme Court case that rules in the opposite direction. Tell me about this Barnett case, uh, another case involving Jehovah's Witnesses and the Pledge of Allegiance. In, in Supreme Court time, three years is a nanosecond. Yes. <laughs> Very dramatic. It is fair to say that when Frankfurter handed down his opinion, 
Um, Several of his clerks were very distressed by what had happened. And over the next couple of years, justice after justice gave hints that they might like to reconsider the opinion. In part, this was motivated by the violence around the country that embarrassed the United States and, and its officials. Also, though, the conduct of World War II Uh made an enormous difference. By 1943, it had become clear that something terrible was happening in Germany. Mm -hmm. Nobody quite knew the extent of the Holocaust, but it was clear that Hitler was engaged in widespread violence against minorities, not only Jews, Jehovah's Witnesses, 10,000 were sent to concentration camps in Germany. So this was because a, they refused to, to Heil Hitler. Hitler. Uh-huh. Exactly, exactly. So partly the court and the country had learned from the violence at home and the violence abroad directed against minorities of all kinds, especially religious minorities. Did the decision, who wrote that decision and did it refer explicitly to either what had happened at home or what was going on in Germany? It was Justice Jackson who was well-known after the war for his um, important role at the Nuremberg trials. Jackson referred both directly and indirectly, I think, in some of the most quoted and quotable language from the Supreme Court. The eloquence of the opinion is stunning. Um, He said, once we start looking for unanimity in these ways, we achieve only the unanimity of the graveyard. Really powerful, dark language. When we start punishing dissenters for such mild behavior as refusing to salute, we wind up eliminating the dissenters themselves. That's the road he saw. Eliminating? Yes. Yeah, so that's a direct reference to the concentration camps, it would seem like. It is. Um, In a footnote as well, he referred to the fact that the salute closely resembled the salute to Hitler. This was a a raised arm but palm up salute before placing the hand on the heart, where Heil Hitler was a palms down straight arm. Is that how people used to salute? It is. And what was the reaction to this decision, which in essence was the opposite of Gobitis? So it's very difficult for the Supreme Court to do such a thing and hold on to its prestige and influence um, and respect around the country. And the Supreme Court clearly understood this. The decision was announced on Flag Day. (laughs) So in part, this was about deference to considerations of the flag, as well as the conclusion that we don't need to punish schoolchildren whose religion dictates otherwise, that small minority groups who are not themselves violent have the protection of the Constitution when they exercise their religion. And I think the violence around the country, as well as the deep desire among Americans to distinguish themselves from Hitler, to say we are not like that, produced widespread satisfaction. So this was a well-received It was. The New York Times headline ran, Blot Removed. And how do we get such a concern for individual rights at the very time that the state 
is growing, the product of the New Deal itself, and then, of course, World War II and the Cold War that ensues. Yes, It strikes me as two different trends. It's often said that war is the health of the state, and certainly World War II was very healthy for the power and economy of the United States. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court, which had been in the mid-1930s in the business of overturning New Deal economic legislation um, as a result either of natural evolution of doctrine or the court packing plan, pick your historical interpretation, had really gotten out of the business of overturning such legislation and very soon thereafter sent hints through footnotes in economic opinions that it would begin to take the rights of discrete and insular minorities seriously going forward. In other words, protecting constitutional rights against this very powerful new government. So it's because the state's so powerful that the court said, we've got a new role here. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. It's it's about what kind of government we want given how large it's going to be and what the limits are we want to place on that power. An ongoing battle, one that's never really over. Sarah Baringer-Gordon is a historian at the University of Pennsylvania and author of The Spirit of the Law, Religious Voices, and the Constitution in Modern America. You know, one of the things that strikes me about that story and talking about the Pledge of Allegiance is it, it, of course, reminds me of the moment that we're in now when there's talk about taking a knee uh, during the national anthem and what, mm-hmm. what that means. And the thing that's striking about both of those stories is the real power that those kinds of rituals or those ritualistic displays have. And again, uh, kind of like the Bill of Rights, you know, things we take for granted right. – until right. there's something that suddenly brings them to your attention. And then you actually have to rethink what it means. And, and given what it means, what do you want to do about it? That's right. No, it's believed to be a timeless tradition that we stand during the national anthem or that we put our hand over our heart during the Pledge of Allegiance. And all of these things are constantly in flux. And I, I really enjoy these moments when you can look back and imagine in your mind's eye what a s- salute to the flag would look like that actually hearkened to what a salute for the Nazi regime might have looked like. The fact that we were that close to that salute um, was, you know, a moment in time in this country, right? And so just thinking through the dynamism of these ceremonies and rituals, I think, forces us to, to raise exactly this question, which is, is this now a moment where our relationship to the Star-Spangled Banner is going through a revision? All of this is, you know, happening in real time in ways that <laughs> some Americans can sometimes be uncomfortable with. And the drama is increased, of course, by the fact that millions of people are watching to see what other people do. Right. You know, right. whether you, you put your hand over your heart in a school classroom— or when nobody else is actually paying attention to you in a crowd at a ball game is one thing. But when cameras and the president of the United States are trained on you, it's a whole different kind of drama, it seems. Mm-hmm.
1954, the Supreme Court handed down its famous decision in Brown versus the Board of Education. Racial segregation in public schools, the court said, deprived children of their right to equal protection under the 14th Amendment. Oliver W. Hill was a lawyer for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund in Richmond, Virginia at the time. He and his colleagues had filed case after case against segregation, including one initiated by a student protest in Prince Edward County, Virginia. That was one of the five cases folded into Brown. And when the Brown ruling came down... It was the happiest I'd ever seen him. (laughs) This is Oliver Hill Jr. He remembers his father's reaction to Brown because it was so out of character. I mean, he was always pretty, you know, low-key. He didn't really, you know, emote uh, that much around the the household anyway. And that particular day, I just remember uh, him just beaming. (laughs) But the joy didn't last. The very next year, the Supreme Court mandated a timetable for desegregation. In a case known as Brown v. Board 2, Chief Justice Earl Warren ordered segregated school districts to comply with the first Brown decision with all deliberate speed. It was a phrase with built-in ambiguity. And across the South, many school districts took advantage of the ambiguity to take their own sweet time with the order. Some districts in Virginia chose to close their public schools down entirely while funding so-called private academies for white children. In 2015, our co-host Brian Ballow sat down with Oliver Hill Jr. to talk about his memories of this fraught chapter in American history. Hill said his father was part of the legal team that was asked to help the court come up with a timetable for Brown II. And in fact, after they had made a few proposals to the opposing counsel and all of them were rejected, Uh, My father said they finally just in an exasperated way uh, asked, well, what do you think would be a reasonable time frame? And the other lawyers came back with 2020. (laughs) So 2020. 2020 uh, was what they thought would be a reasonable length. So we're not there. We're not there 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 yet. yet. And I think deliberate speed was the most benign translation of 2020. (laughs) Do you think that deliberate undercut speed? Or do you think that it was intended to kind of reinforce a steady, I have always interpreted it as a a kind of steady speed. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a reasonable uh, interpretation. Uh, But again, I think from the standpoint of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund lawyers, why was there a need for any kind of uh, equivocation? I mean, this is now the law of the land, let's institute it. Right. the white perception was, particularly in the South, that there would be this bloodbath if it took place too fast. And so uh, I think it was to placate the more Southern-leaning members of the court that Earl Warren kind of agreed to that phrasing. And I think within a year or two, deliberate speed meant never. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was one of the first, in one of the first groups to desegregate schools in Richmond, Virginia, and that was in 1961. So that was already seven years after the original decision. And even at that time, it was really just token integration. It was just, you know, a few black students in a few white schools. Tell me about your experience uh, being one of the first African-Americans to desegregate a school? It was uh, like entering another world. I mean, in the days of segregation in the South, uh, you know, even growing up in a middle-class household, my world was circumscribed by the black community. You know, it was very self-sufficient, 
So I really didn't have a lot of experience interacting with white people. Mm-hmm. And so this first day, it was at Chandler Junior High School in Richmond. I must have been 12. And I was walking up the steps. It was a very imposing building. They must have had us come late because there wasn't the usual hustle and bustle of kids going in and out of the school. There was absolutely nobody out in front of the school as I was walking up the steps. You know, I really didn't know what to expect. And it was interesting. I mean, there, for the most part, most of the kids and most of the teachers were friendly. Um, there were a few, both teachers and students, who you could tell did not want us there. Mm-hmm. How could you uh, tell that? Well, they would call you names or things like Not the teachers, but the students. Uh-huh. <laughs> or they would call you the N-word or, uh-huh. uh, you know, any creative thing. One time somebody called me a burnt biscuit. <laughs> wow. Oliver, were there moments on that first day or the first week or maybe over the course of your public school education where you kind of wondered whether this was too speedy? I mean, you personally. Well, I personally didn't want to be there. I wanted to be with my friends in the black school. Uh Uh, But I'd kind of been geared toward this, and so I understood the larger issues. Uh, Uh My father would always talk to me about integration of the schools as the process by which people would learn how to live together. And in fact, that experiment was working pretty well uh, when I first started integrating the schools. I mean, gradually we had more and more black kids coming Mm -hmm. in. There was actually meaningful integration for a couple of years. You know, there was kind of a gradual, grudging recognition of each other's humanity. So the experiment was working. you know, unfortunately, just as we were starting to have some breakthroughs, on, you know, in, in terms of the social experiment, uh, there was that immediate resegregation of schools with white flight toward the end of the 60s. When I think at, at the point where it was recognized that this wasn't going to be reversed and this wasn't going to change, uh, then, you know, new strategies were put in place. Well, some of that white flight, and I'm in no way... Um, condoning it, but some of it was in reaction to the court finally getting serious about implementing uh, its decision in 1954 and 1955. Uh, In 1964, for instance, the Supreme Court said, there's been entirely too much deliberation and not enough speed. What if the Supreme Court, rather than using that phrase, all deliberate speed, had said immediately and without delay, or even something, you know, simple, like within three months back in 1955. What if? First of all, I don't think there would have been a bloodbath. I think uh, children are very resilient. A lot of the black and white children in the South were playing together anyway. And I think the same social experiment that I was going through in the early 60s would have happened earlier and in a more uh, comprehensive way. And I think because of the delay, a lot of other factors started to, to come into play. Because in the 60s, once you had the, the passage of civil rights laws and the society was generally more open for black people, not only did you have white flight to the suburbs, but black middle class flight to the suburbs. And so inner cities started to be starved of their tax base. Uh, you know, you had this concentration of poverty. And so what started out as a, a race issue started to get conflated with class, and, and it made the problems of inner-city schools in 
city life in general, you know, much more problematic than it would have been uh, without those complications. Oliver Hill Jr. is a psychology professor at Virginia State University. He also served on the board at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where Backstory is produced. You know, one of the things that really struck me about this story is the deliberate ambiguity of of that so ruling. To speak. Yeah, well, yes, <laughs> very deliberate, and yet not deliberate. Just the ways in which that was explicitly not specific, and that that was, in a sense, the purpose of it was to not be specific. And it really does show what can happen when the court decides to build in these gray spaces, right? It gives people all kinds of space to operate. I mean, the story that we you know, tell about the Brown decision really is kind of schizophrenic, right? I mean, we talk about it as being this landmark you know, decision. Right. But then when you look at its impact, you always wonder what exactly did it accomplish? Mm. And I think something from the Hill interview that really does hammer this home is, as he says, so much happens after the Brown decision comes down that allows there to be a kind of muddying of the waters about desegregation, right? You have schools that are blocking the effort to basically desegregate. You have the privatization of certain schools, and everyone's finding a different way to deal with this. And if you look at the the litigation around school desegregation itself, you have cases in, you know, Charlotte where they're defending busing successfully through a court order. You have cases in Southeast Michigan where they decide that they're not going to basically defend busing because you can't prove that that you have intentional discrimination. And through the 70s and 80s, every little corner of the country is coming up with its own kind of on-the-fly response for either executing or not the mandate in Brown. And so, you know, it's in a lot of ways the kind of landmark decision that never was. Um, just as a, mm. a quick counterpoint, there's a case that most people have no knowledge of at all, which is Jones versus Mayer, which is a 1968 decision. And there, there's no ambiguity at all. Mm. All they basically say is that Congress has the right to regulate the sale of private property. And that is what allows the Fair Housing Act in that year, 1968, to basically have teeth. And, and you'll love this different kind of language from as opposed to all deliberate speed, which is simply drawing from the good old 19th century U.S. Code from 1866. All citizens of the United States will have the same right in every state and territory as is enjoyed by white citizens thereof to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property, unquote, right? So basically you're saying, look, what we're going to say now around housing is everybody has the same rights as white people. Full stop. That's what the court wow. is going to decide. <laughs> no, no, no implementation vagueness, nothing like that. It's like just give everybody white rights as it concerns housing, and now we're going to move on. Wow. And that's an interesting contrast, I think, to what happens in 1954, 55. 
So does that mean, Nathan, that we can't really tell when a Supreme Court decision is actually a blockbuster decision? <laughs> Sometimes that there's a, a delayed fuse? I think that's right. I mean, the language as we saw in the earlier cases from, you know, 1917 and 18 around clear and present danger, that phrase, I'm sure when it was initially conceptualized, maybe wasn't meant to be the kind of measure that it ends up being for future free speech cases. And I wonder to what extent, I mean, obviously justices are very careful with their clerks about the language they use, but you never really know what phrase is going to be the one that kind of gives the next generation of litigants and cases their life, you know? That's going to do it for today. But you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your burning history questions. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And feel free, as always, to review the new show in the iTunes Store. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. We're a proud member of the Panoply Podcast Network. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.